have two Bible readings this morning. The first one is Psalm 2. And then we'll go to Luke 9, starting at verse 18. So it's Psalm 2 first. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Second reading is following on Luke chapter 9 beginning at verse 18 and going through to verse 36. And in this section, we read about Jesus, uh, Peter declaring that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus predicting his death and then the transfiguration. So Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, 
Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Hello. Yeah, come on. Thanks for reading, Lindor. Hello, all. I, I've got to hear you because I can't see your mouths. Isn't it tragic? Uh, the the masks, but uh, isn't it good? The protection that it gives us at the moment. Um, my name's Dan. I am a member of Lakes here, and it's lovely to be with you. I have finished my job at AFES. If you if you knew that I was working with university students on the coast, I'm currently unemployed. But next week, I'm starting Bible college with Mel. Uh, so that's exciting. Uh, wasn't it wonderful to hear Mel's interview before, hey? Uh, and I'll be commuting uh, to, to Sydney for that. So there you go. So I'll still be with you. But it is a great privilege to read and consider those words that we heard from the Lord. Uh, so I'm going to pray that we would uh, hear him speak, that we would see the glory of Jesus this morning. Our Father, please, may we be captured by your Son, by who he is. May we see him in all of his glory this morning. We pray that as we see him, our hearts might be changed and that we might follow him for the rest of our days. Amen. Well, as I've been on holidays this last couple of weeks, I've found something out about myself is that I really like disaster movies. <laughs> and I don't know why, because they're terrible. <laughs> the scripts are shocking. On every single... I've never heard a good script on a disaster movie. But here's how you know you like a movie. When you're doing nothing on a holiday and you've got all the time in the world, what do I pick? A disaster movie. Sit down and watch it. And I think I've worked out the formula. If you ever want to make one, you take an actor who used to be good who's in their middle age playing a dad who's just been divorced. I think that's how they all start. And then something happens when that dad is taking the family back to the ex-wife to make the end of the world happen, maybe a comet. The earth freezes over. You just enter some dramatic situation and you've got your disaster movie and you work it out. What a fantastic genre. <laughs> Here's the thing. There is actually quite a powerful moment in each disaster movie amidst the terrible script. There is this beautiful human moment when they realise the truth. One of my favourites is in Dante's Peak, which is about a volcano, so that's, that's the end of the world in that one, for a town. And Harry Dalton is a volcanologist. He realises the truth that the volcano is going to blow, and he says this, 
your volcano might just be waking up. It's very understated. He said it to his boss, and his boss replies, you're talking about the evacuation of a whole town. Don't you think that's a little extreme? I love those moments, because what you see is the truth. If it's big, it impacts everything, doesn't it? The bigger the truth, the more significant the impact. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that the truth that we see about Jesus is the most significant of all. It is so significant, his claims, that if they're true, they change everything. I want you to have that moment this morning, realizing if Jesus is who he says he is, nothing can be the same. Everything changes as we see who he is. And how how we're going to do that is we're going to look at three questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And who will you live for? And you'll find it a great help if you have Luke 9 open in front of you as we do that. Have a look with me at verse 18. This is our first question. Who is Jesus? Verse 18 in your Bibles. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Jesus is speaking with his disciples and he asks them an interesting question. Who do the crowds say that I am? Have you ever tried that with someone? (laughs) Who do you say I am? It's so focused on Jesus, isn't it? And, And that's right. It's the right question. Who is Jesus? If you've been with us at the lakes over the last couple of weeks, it's a question worth asking, isn't it? Jesus has done extraordinary things. He has healed the sick. He caused a paralyzed man to get up and walk. No physio. No rehab. A word and he walked. He has cast out demons. Who is this man that has power? If you were with us last week, do you remember the disciples are with Jesus in the boat and the storm looks like it's going to swamp them and they're going to die? And Jesus gets up and with a word he calms the storm and the seas and the wind and the waves. Remember what the disciples say? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Just before our passage, he's fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And it's not that he cut them up really small. (laughs) He fed the whole crowd. Who is this man? That is the question Luke wants us to ask. That's the question Jesus asks here. And the crowd's answers are interesting, aren't they? John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets of long ago, probably not your answers, Probably not those that you've heard before, but for the Israelites, it made perfect sense. What the crowd saw was a man who was like no other that they had seen, one who did miraculous things, and they thought, this man is from God as a prophet. Maybe he's Elijah, the one who would come before the day of the Lord. Maybe he's John the Baptist, one of the other prophets risen from the dead. The thing is, Jesus' power was undeniable for those who were there. They knew he was someone significant. But the question is, who was he? Who is he? They they didn't know for sure. They didn't know what to do with him. They just knew he was someone significant. I don't think a lot's changed in 2,000 years, has it? 
You talk to most people and they don't know a whole lot of what to do with Jesus, but they know he was someone significant. They know he had some kind of deep significance on our world. Whether he was a prophet, a good man who, who taught extraordinary things. Jesus is someone you need to grapple with. You can't dismiss this man. But look at how much time Jesus gives to that question. He asks the question, who do the crowds say that I am? The disciples answer, and he ignores their answer. <laughs> Did you notice that? He goes straight on to ask another question. The much more important question. What about you? Verse 20. Who do you say that I am? And I want to suggest that's the question that really matters. Not what do they say, but what do you say? It's personal. You can't escape that question. And Jesus asked the same question of us this morning. Who do you say that I am? It's a much more important question to who do they say. And I want you for the rest of this talk to consider that question in your heart. Who do you think Jesus is? It is a life-changing question. Look at Peter's answer. Peter answered, the Messiah of God. That is a massive answer. That is an extraordinary answer. The disciples have been with Jesus for a while now. They had seen him like no other had seen him. They had been with him and they knew this is not a prophet. This is more than a prophet. This is the Messiah, Peter said. He gets it right. And that answer is so significant. But I take it we lose the significance today because we don't have the familiarity with the Old Testament. And so I want to show you what this means, that Jesus is the Messiah. See, the word Messiah, same word as the word Christ. Christ is the Greek, Messiah is the Hebrew. It means anointed one. Back in the Old Testament, when they would proclaim a king, they would anoint them with oil. And after a while, there were these prophecies that spoke not of just an ordinary king, but of one who would come who was the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. Very significant prophecy that this one, this great one, this God's king who would reign forever. One of those passages is Psalm 2 that we read before. And I want you to turn there in your Bibles. I haven't got it on the screen because I'd love you to actually flick there. I'd love to hear the sound of your Bibles flicking there because it is an extraordinary passage. Psalm 2. Let me point out a couple of things. Have a look at that verse in verse 2. The, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed one. Look at this Messiah, this Christ. Verse 7, he said to me, you are my son. Verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron. I will make you, verse 8, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. This is the king. What a prophecy of one who would come who would reign over all in justice and power. What a significant claim that Peter says, you are that one. <laughs> you are the Messiah. See, in the history of Israel, the people were oppressed by so many nations they were oppressed by the Assyrians, the Babylonians. The, the, the people of Judah were taken off to Babylon and they came back. About 100 years later, the Greeks came. 
than the Romans, as Peter's talking now. And the Israelites treasured these prophecies. They longed for one who would come, who would set them free. With power, God's king. What a significant moment when Peter says, you are the Messiah. That is who Jesus is. Actually, at the heart of Christianity, that is who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. But our passage goes further than just saying it. It shows us on the mountain who Jesus is. Have a look at verse 28. About eight days after Jesus had said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. What a glorious passage. The appearance of his face changed. His clothes became bright like a flash of lightning. When was the last time you were outside in the dark in a storm and you saw the lightning? The, 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 the New Testament writers just try and reach for something with as much glory as they saw and nothing captures it. Lightning. His face changed. Matthew, in a parallel passage, says Jesus' face shone like the sun. (laughs) This is glory. What's going on? Moses and Elijah are there. And one of the significant things about Moses and Elijah is if you wanted to sum up the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah are two pretty good figures. The lawgiver and the prophets. The great ones are there pointing to Jesus. This is the culmination of the whole Old Testament, the Messiah. The voice thunders from heaven, this is my son. What's going on? We'll have a look at verse 32. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. They saw his glory. One of the other significant things about Moses and Elijah is both of them had an encounter with God on the mountain in the Old Testament. Moses, as he came back down the mountain, his face shone with the reflected glory of Yahweh. Elijah hides his face as he sees the whisper, he hears the whisper of God. And yet here again, Moses and Elijah see the glory of the Lord in the Son of God. Notice it's not a reflected glory for Jesus, it is His glory. This is the glory of the divine Son of God. What a moment! Moses' face shone just from reflected glory of God, Jesus' face shone because it is His glory, this is who He is. Now, if that's true, that changes everything, doesn't it? Jesus is Messiah. He is the Lord. Can you see him in his glory? This is who he is. A couple of years ago, I caught up with a a friend of mine and read the Bible. And and this friend, they they really didn't like the Bible. (laughs) That was kind of hard to catch up and read the Bible with them. But they loved Jesus. They were compelled by Jesus. There was something about Jesus that they couldn't shake. 
And so they agreed to read the Bible. And something extraordinary happened as we read the Bible together. This friend started moving from, I find Jesus compelling for his love and his kindness, to I find Jesus offensive. He asks too much. His claims are too big. I want to suggest that is the journey we should all go on with Jesus if you're not yet a Christian, is the more you scratch, the more you dig, the more you see this is no other. This is like no other. He is not just a good man. His claims are too big. The extraordinary thing, though, that happened as we read the Bible, over the last, over those, those next few months, I, I caught up with this friend this week, and it's what they said... I kept coming back to the Bible and I was convinced that what he said was true. And then what happened is amazing. I first understood in my head and then the beauty of Jesus captured my heart. What a wonderful journey. As you see Jesus, if this is true, it changes everything. He is the Messiah. I want to suggest... Uh, there's a slide on the screen for the Life series. If you're still working these things out, can I encourage you to check this out over six weeks? That's what the Life series does. We consider the claims of Jesus because they're too big to ignore. The claim is that he is the, the Messiah of God. If you're still working these things out, can I encourage you to come along? That is who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. Second, Second question, why did he come? I want to suggest the answer to this is so staggering, it will take your breath away. <laughs> Have a look at verse 22. It's on the screen as well. Jesus said, the Son of Man, that's just Jesus' way of talking about himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Why did the Messiah of God come? To die. <laughs> Does that take your breath away? Or have we heard this too much? Maybe our hearts have grown cold. Jesus, God's Son, came into our world that he must die. What an extraordinary message in the Bible. The one who is in glory came to die. It's there in the Transfiguration as well. Take a closer look at the Transfiguration. This is the moment, I take it, in Jesus' life between his birth and his resurrection where we see most visibly his glory. It's like no other in the Gospels, is it? And yet, what's the purpose of the Transfiguration? Have a look. Why is he on the mountain with Moses and Elijah? Verse 30. Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. They're actually speaking. There's a purpose here for Jesus. Verse 31. They spoke about his departure that was about to take place in Jerusalem, about his death, his death and his resurrection and his return to the Father. What's the purpose of the transfiguration for Jesus? To prepare him for his death. The moment of his glory is to show us that the one who is glorious would die. Why did he come to die? Well, there's a clue in the voice from heaven as God speaks. 
Listen to the words. God says from the cloud, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And what the father's doing is he is meshing together words that he's already spoken in the Old Testament, prophecies, beautiful prophecies. The first is the Messiah, this is my son. The second, whom I have chosen, is a quote from Isaiah 42 about the suffering servant. See, in the book of Isaiah, there are the servant songs that speak of one who would come and suffer for Israel. Look at Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Do you see what God's doing? He's bringing together these two figures, the Messiah and the suffering servant. The most well-known of the servant songs is Isaiah 53. And I want to take you there again. If you've got your Bibles, please flick there. Isaiah 53, it's, it's kind of in the middle of your Bible. I'll give you a little bit of a moment to find it. From verse 3, speaks of the suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Aren't they profound words? The suffering servant came to deal with sin. This is what the Israelites didn't understand. The disciples didn't understand. that The greatest problem facing Israel was not the Romans, even though they were oppressed and under Roman occupation. The greatest problem for Israel had always been their hearts. That in their hearts towards God, they had ignored Him, turned their backs on Him. It's what the Bible calls sin, that we ignore, reject and rebel against the God who made us. And that's a massive problem. Because to ignore God is to come under His judgment. The Bible says that the consequences of our sin is death and the judgment of God. We are in way over our heads. We need a saviour. That is our greatest single need as humanity is to have forgiveness of sin. But look at what the Messiah, the suffering servant, come together. Look at what the suffering servant Jesus came to do. Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, as Jesus died on the cross, what he was preparing for in the transfiguration is that he would hang on a cross outside the city in Jerusalem. And as he hung on that cross, he died, the Bible says, in your place. That as he died, the Lord laid on him the sin of God's people. All of it. So that if you trust in him, he took your sin in your place. What a wonder. 
that Jesus would die in our place, so that if you trust in him, your sin is gone. It was placed on him. All of it, past, present, future. So that all of our guilt we can place at his feet. Uh, I came across a story this week about this man up on the screen. His name is Bill Deacon. And I doubt many of you have come across him. Uh, I wonder if you have. He was a rescuer, a sea rescuer. He flew a helicopter. Actually, he didn't fly it. He was the one who came down uh, and and rescued people out at sea. And, And one time in 1997, the ship, the Green Lily was in a storm and it was about to get flooded onto the rocks. Massive storm. And Bill Deacon was winched down to the crew. There was 10 left. And as he was winched down, he, he pulled them up. Three at a time. Extraordinary rescue. But as he was, doing, as, as he was pulling the last men up, he realised that time was running out and he got all of the rest of them up. But in order to do it, he unclipped himself and clipped on to the last of the men. And all ten were saved. And the account of those men is that moments later, a 50-foot wave crashed over the boat and Bill Deacon died on the rocks. I wonder if that story sends chills up your spine. I want to suggest the reason for that is that it points to the heart of the cross. The reason we find, part of the reason we find those stories so compelling is that one man dies for the many. And that is exactly what happened at the cross, that Jesus, God's Messiah, died for sinners. What a God! The Son of God would die for us. The Divine Son, the Glorious One, came into our world, came down from heaven and became nothing. Nothing. Became a man in order to save us, to winch us up to safety if we trust in him. Do you see him as he is? He is the Messiah who came to die. It is a beautiful truth that the one whose face shone on the mountain would then be crowned with thorns as he died. That the one whose clothes were like lightning hung naked on a cross as soldiers below cast lots for his clothes. That the one who stood between Moses and Elijah in glory would then hang between two criminals on a cross. That the one who is the light of the world, who stood on the mountain as the voice said, this is my son, would die in darkness as God's judgment passed on to him And as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Why did he do it? To save us. It's a wonderful truth. Third, who will you live for? Have a look at verse 23. Then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves And take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. 
but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Verse 26 presents a terrifying reality. It is real, it's terrifying. Have a look. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, Jesus says, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and with the holy angels. A day is coming when Jesus will return. He, he came to our world to die for sin. He rose again, he ascended the Father, and there's a day coming where he will return. Not to die, but to judge. And on that day, the rest of Psalm 2 will be fulfilled. The Messiah, the King, will come to rule. And he will smash the enemies of God. It is a terrifying picture. All people will give an account to him of the life they have lived. You and I will stand before our maker and our God. And Jesus said, if you are ashamed of him, if you have not yet put your trust in him, on that day he will be ashamed of you. That you will lose your life for eternity. Eternity is real. These truths change everything. Heaven and hell this is the disaster movie moment. Except it's not a movie, it's real. Jesus really did come. He really is the Messiah. Do you believe it? If you do, it changes everything, doesn't it? There is one who has come who has paid for our sin, who is the Lord. What will you do? Jesus presents us with a choice. It's a choice of who you will live for, to live for ourselves or for him. And Jesus says, if you live for yourself, that's what he says by saving your life. That is, if you live for the things of this world, then when Jesus comes back, you will lose it. As Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit your very self? Is your soul a price that you're willing to pay in order to live for yourself for a few short years now? Can I plead with you that is not an equation that is worth it? Is Jesus the Messiah? If he is, like my friend, I take it that changes everything. But Jesus says the one who lives for him will save their life for eternity. Have a look at verse 24. Whoever loses their life for me, Jesus says, will save it. Now he explains what he means in verse 23. Have a look back there. Whoever wants to be my disciple, my follower, must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Now that is strong language, isn't it? It's very strong. Whoever wants to be a follower of Jesus must deny themselves. And then Jesus uses a radical metaphor to suggest that. And for some of his followers, it wasn't even a metaphor. To take up your cross. To die to self and to follow Jesus. 
See, when you become a Christian, you say, I'm not going to live for myself but for Jesus. It's a change of who you live for. At the heart of being a Christian is to live for him. It doesn't mean we do it perfectly, but it means we've decided no longer to live for us but for him. Jesus says that's a daily choice to continue to follow him. Leon Morris helpfully says that in the ancient world, the one, the man who walked with a cross on his back with a small company of Roman soldiers did not return. The disciples would have seen that happen. When you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you're saying, I'm going to live for Jesus. My old life is dead. I live for him. At the heart of Christianity is the cross. It is the cross of Christ that saves us, and so he calls us to take up our cross and follow our Saviour. That's a hard road. If you've been a Christian for more than half a second, it's a hard road, isn't it? Like our Saviour, it is suffering before glory. But it is a good road. It is a wonderful road. And that cross becomes lighter as we remember that Jesus died for us. Our sin has been paid for. We live in freedom only if we follow him. Carrying your cross is a reminder that we died with Christ. Our sin has already been dealt with. There is nothing left to pay. And if you have not experienced that, can I encourage you, come to Jesus. Cast your sin at his feet. Come to him. He welcomes you. Would you take up your cross and live for him? It is the best life, even though there is suffering. And there is an age to come where Jesus says we will be in glory with him. How light does that cross feel when we remember our Lord Jesus? If you're a follower of Jesus, we are those who, have, who live for the crucified Messiah. And Jesus said a servant is not greater than his master. It is a cost, but it is a wonderful cost. And there will come a day when we will see Jesus face to face in glory. That is our hope. That we will see the Messiah, the Son of God who died for us, the Lamb that was slain in heaven forever in the new creation. And as I finish, I want to reflect with you on this little passage, little promise that I've found this week in 1 John 3. It's up on the screen. Let me read it for us. Dear friends, we, now we are the children of God. What a wonderful truth that is. If we trust in Jesus, we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That is our hope. And I take it the transfiguration gives us this wonderful little glimpse of heaven. Moses and Elijah in glory with the Son. We will be God's people in glory around the Saviour, singing his praises. Will you come to him? Will you live for him? Let me pray. Our Father, this morning we have seen your glory, the glory of your Son, the glory of the Messiah. 
Lord, it changes everything. I pray that we might consider eternity, that we might see Jesus for who he is, and that it might change our very soul and our lives, our everything. Lord, you have given everything for us. May we give our whole lives to you in response. Amen.